It's ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. I'm Samantha Ellis, and I'm joined by my two lovely co-hosts. Kristen Lopez. Drea Clark. And today, we have a Silent Film 101 episode, joined by the amazing silent film expert extraordinaire, Fritzy Kramer. Hi there. Awesome to have you, Fritzy. And we haven't really discussed silent cinema too much on our podcast, but we're really excited to get into it. I don't think we've ever discussed it. I'm trying to think of the the history of the podcast. And I I know I did a very, very early episode on Ben-Hur, but that was more like I touched on the different incarnations of Ben-Hur. But we never really discussed the silent version. I think, if anything, we compared the 50s version to the 20-whatever version that nobody saw except me. So, yeah, I don't think we've ever actually talked about silent cinema, which makes this a treat. It has. I've been petitioning behind the scenes to do Sherlock Jr. for a year. So I this was just is about like, to say, we have had silent films on the docket, like yeah. on the witch list. But, but it's and I've just vetoed all of them. No. <laughs> There's a lot to cover, but I'm excited that we have someone here who can elevate all of our discussion and do right by it. Yeah. Fritzy, you know, for people who don't know who you are, which they should, because you're the person that I always refer to when I talk about silent cinema, can you give a little background on your interest in silence and becoming what I consider now kind of the foremost authority on the medium? Well, I've always been into classic films. I grew up with like Laurel and Hardy and Cary Grant movies, Errol Flynn movies, you know, all that good stuff. But I kept realizing that my my knowledge pretty much ended with 1930. It was like there was that cutoff. So I had some interest. I had seen some old Mutt and Jeff cartoons, but I decided that I was going to try it out. And so I rented a couple of movies from blockbuster on VHS. And I got City Lights. I got uh, Sparrows with Mary Pickford. And I just sort of got hooked on it. And so then I got some Valentino movies. I got some Cecil B. DeMille movies. And I sort of built it up from there. I watched the documentaries and it just kept growing and growing. And, you know, I kept finding connections. Like my father's a huge Hopalong Cassidy fan. Well, actually both my parents are. And William Boyd started in The Silence. So I watched all of his. So it just kind of, it just sort of snowballed because there's just so much information and so much there that you can just keep digging forever, basically. Mine was, I studied film history in college. So we had kind of the, like you're saying, the bigger keynote ones, though, of course, in university, like a lot of my own interests, especially then I've been, you guys, just very kind of obnoxiously pretentious for a very long time. So of course, I gravitated towards the German expressionism and the cabinet of Dr. Calgary, like things that just were weird and sumptuous to look at. Your metropolis, your the visual astounding stuff. I actually didn't get into proper American silence until I moved to LA like 20 some years ago. And weirdly, the indirect, 
thing of Fritzy bringing up Valentino was one of the places that we see movies when we used to go see movies was they do outdoor screenings at Hollywood Forever and Valentino's buried there. And so I remember like walking around and being like, oh, I've always heard of that. And it was this slight side thing. But the best avenue for me, and I'm sure we can get into this when we discuss it, was when I found the more the physical comedy stuff of it because I had already like dug into like visual possibilities. Like I'm a Harold Lloyd girl because, you know, I love me a nerd and the sort of Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin of it. That was a whole new thing. So yeah, Fritzy's totally right. There's so much there to dig into and each layer feels completely different than the other one. You could study so much there forever, but that was my kind of course through, which is maybe a backwards approach into it. But, you know, I don't like to, I guess, do things the frontward way. How about you, Samantha? Honestly, I relate so much to what you're saying, Drea, like on on many different levels, because for one thing, out of the big three silent comedians, I am also a Harold Lloyd girl. I literally have a pin of him on my work lanyard. That's the only pin I have on there is Harold Lloyd. I adore him. So I would say, honestly, I couldn't really tell you how I got into silent cinema. I think it was just a natural progression watching TCM and I mean I, I still don't think TCM shows enough silent films but when they do show them I was always curious because my whole experience watching and getting into classic cinema I've been making an effort this whole time the past 10-11 years that I've been experiencing classic cinema to broaden my horizons because I'm never disappointed And I think silent film is one of the perfect examples of that because every time I watch a silent film, I I haven't found one yet really that I dislike. And I completely relate with Rudolph Valentino. And then I'll also mention too, silent cinema, I've always been interested in it, but I would say I've watched more silent films within the last year than I have in all my time before that. Um, largely because of Jacqueline Stewart hosting the Silent Sunday Nights every Sunday night. And that's when I'm off. So that's when I'm watching TCM. So I've been discovering more silent films than ever before. And also just watching more films of the silent stars that I like, like Harold Lloyd. And the fact that they're a lot more available now on on like Criterion and all that. And Rhoda Valentino, all of those, they're just so fantastic. And then in addition to that, it's funny that you bring up Hollywood Forever because one of my closest friends in the classic film community is Jessica Wall, who runs the Instagram Silences Platinum. And she and I, for the last two years, have been making an effort to mark the unmarked graves of different actors within all realms of classic Hollywood, but more often than not, we mark silent film stars and filmmakers because they're often unmarked. So through that medium, I've discovered so much of their work. I'm just like so proud when I mark one of their graves and then I watch a movie of theirs. It's just the, it's the most fascinating, it's the coolest thing in the world. So that's a bit of a unique way to get into silent cinema, but that's lately how I've been doing it. We actually just marked six graves at Hollywood Forever, all silent actors and filmmakers, including one of the first female screenwriters to be given a studio contract. Uh, So that that was like a big one. And that's how it's been for me lately. more, more silence than ever, which I'm very excited about. Yeah, I think this is why we have Fritzy here. You know, Fritzy, for you, I know you get 
there's definitely a lot of back and forth about silence being kind of this unloved genre of classic films. For you, what do you think keeps people from engaging with silence and why are they wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think... One of the main things that gets in the way is that our view of this, I I compare it to Elvis Presley, where a lot of people's impression of Elvis is based on impressions of Elvis. So they're exaggerated to the point where, you know, it's this huge guy with a, with a peanut butter sandwich going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And then they don't actually listen to the music. And so, and it's the same thing with silent films. They've been so spoofed, so made fun of that people immediately think of Dudley Do-Right when they're not looking at the actual movies. And I do think that canon, the quote unquote, the canon is part of the problem because basically the silent era in America went every genre under the sun and that's just America. You know, we're talking about the whole world that's available to us and they're all of a very distinct type. They're based on the taste of a bunch of white male guys. And so it's all very heavy stuff. And then there's slapstick and then there's pretty much nothing in between. And I think that's a big part of the problem is that um, even people who watch silent films are satisfied with three or four movies and like, okay, I get the idea. I know what they are. And then they move on without really examining the depth of it. Like for example, the book, A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die only has six films made before 1920. And of them, three were directed by a white supremacist. And of them, only two were made before 1910 and nothing was made before 1900. So we have this incredibly limited perspective and not a lot of people... I mean, I'm not the only one doing this. There are a lot of people that are trying to make it more popular, but when you compare it to other eras and other genres and other um, types of films, there aren't that many of us who are trying to make silent films accessible to someone who's just curious and wants to know more. Well, also part of it too, and maybe this is a misconception, but I've always been told that the reason silence are not more beloved is the fact that so many of them are lost. I, I don't, what's the statistic that they they trot out 90% of silent cinema is gone forever. I don't know if that's even a true statement, but would, do you think that that also plays a hand in it? Well, I mean, it's definitely true that we have lost a lot. Like, for example, Theda Barrow was one of the top stars of the teens, and only two of her films from her prime vamping years exist. But I think another problem is what does survive is often presented badly. You know, there are these battered prints with no music or bad music, or they, they're they projected at the wrong speed so that people can make fun of them. And that's less popular now, but in the mid-century, it was super tense, just palpable, for example. Um, so there was a, a short film I saw in the 1930s, and they had an early pioneering cinematographer talking about the good old days. But the problem was he was talking over scenes of these rare films, some of them which are lost, and heckling them and saying, oh, wasn't that stupid? I can't believe we were doing that, you know? And it just, it made me a little sick to trot out this pioneer and basically force him to make fun of his earlier work. So I think that's part of the problem is that the later generation just went you um, towards silence. Talkies were like the symbol of, you know, being modern and exciting. And once you're uncool, it's very difficult to get the cool back. I think that's a huge, huge issue. But lost films are absolutely a problem because it's frustrating. You're like, oh, that looks so cool. Can I see it? And like, no, it's lost. Oh, you know, <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it. And it's just kind of depressing. The infamous London After Midnight story about that being one of the greatest supposedly lost films that we'll never get to see. And I know every every couple of years, somebody says that they found a print or something of that. But I, you know, remain skeptical. <laughs> 
The one that I've always read about that kills me is there supposedly is a silent version of The Great Gatsby that was mm-hmm. co-written by F. Scott Fitzgerald that has William Powell in it that is lost and it yes. kills me. Oh, yeah. I mean, we all have our list of films where you're like, ah, if only I could watch that. I know the early version of Gentlemen for Blondes is lost. And but some have emerged. Like, for example, there was a movie called She's a Sheik, which is a gender flipped sheik with B.B. Daniels and Richard Arlen and William Powell. And it was thought lost for years. And it turned out that a private collector had a 16 millimeter copy in England. And it's now in an archive. And I don't know if I'll get to see it anytime soon, but at least I know I can potentially see it at one point. I find I'm often holding out hopes for eccentric British billionaires to be amassing collections of things that will keep culture and art alive. So I'm glad there's something else in this. Fritzi, you you touched on something that I've found true for both myself, but also other people. Like when you try and introduce any kind of film to someone, you're always taking into account like their tastes or the mood they're in. And with silent films, I've found that it's almost like if you're learning you're learning another language because and and we actually I don't know if we've talked about this but I've encountered this with talking about classic film as well in your sort of more 40s through even the 70s people get I don't know if it's the uncoolness that you're talking about or we are currently a modern audience and most of us in in our personal spheres are raised watching things and so you're learning cinematic language a majority of your life whether or not you know that that's what you're learning and I think that every time you go back into a shifting sort of storytelling paradigm that approached it differently that disconnect for how people think that a story should go or a film should be presented when it's told differently than that it they respond to it. It's a different language. And I think that with silent film, the idea of, okay, I like to think of what's the ideal starter kit or pathway towards teaching this language, because there's a lot of things in there. Silent film has so many more short films. I mean, so many more in terms of like being available to us, but also more recognized. Like there's as a, I'm a film festival programmer, there are literally millions of modern short films as well. But I think in terms of learning the language of silent film, there's kind of not a curriculum, but a pathway that you could create for yourself or for someone that is totally new to it. And I'd be interested in hearing what Fritzy thinks about like, oh, what would your building blocks be to someone who's brand new to them to like ease them into the water the best way possible. And obviously, Kristen and Samantha, I'd like your thoughts on that as well. Well, as far as a a pathway into silence, I think so much of it depends on the person's taste because people will ask me, oh, what silent films should I start with? And I usually start by asking them, what do you like now? Because if you can't stand Westerns, there's no point in me recommending a silent Western because you probably won't like it all, though you might because silent Westerns are awesome. And they were doing East Clint Eastwood before Clint Eastwood was Clint Eastwood. So, but I, that's what I do is I try to match people up. For example, a lot of people really enjoy horror. And so I can say, okay, you know, it's not a slasher movie exactly, but there were 
quite a few sinister silence and you can see the building blocks of suspense and how they handled these kind of creepy elements so can pull people in that way. And so something like The Cat and the Canary, which is more of a horror comedy, is really popular because it's very atmospheric and people see where it was very influential and it's fun and it's light and it doesn't ask much of the viewer other than to come in and have a good time. As I know I've had a little more difficulty introducing people to pre-1920 cinema because, as you say, it becomes more and more alien and oftentimes the presentation is is not correct. For example, with Georges Méliès, his films were meant to be hand-colored and presented with narration. So when you show it black and white and with just music, it seems very confusing and disjointed and crowded. And so the person understandably doesn't understand what's going on and doesn't understand its appeal. But when you see it with its correct narration, with its correct colors, then suddenly you can see, suddenly they realize that's how you're supposed to watch it. But As far as my advice for people getting started, I think the most important thing is to, as you say, realize you're learning another language and don't beat yourself up if you don't like the first one, because I didn't like my first silent film. It was presented badly. It was not done right. The the tape was warped. And so I jumped back on and I watched another one and I was able to revisit it. It was Sparrows. I was able to revisit it later and appreciate it under better circumstances and with more knowledge, but it's okay if you don't get it the first time. It's okay to keep trying and it's okay to say, you know what, this genre is not for me. This type of performance is not for me. This movie is not for me because Style films are like any other era. There are good ones, there are bad ones, there are so-so ones. So as long as you recognize that and just realize, relax, you don't have to fall in love with the first one. There's nothing wrong with you. You know, just have a good time, be curious, you'll be fine. I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize when they become interested in silent cinema or when they try to become introduced to it, I think to me there's the misconception. I know um, both Kristen and Andrea touched on the comedies. Not everyone loves comedies. Uh, the, I, would, I would not say that that's my favorite genre. Not all silents are like slapstick, flipping over a banana peel kind of movies. You also have movies like Flesh and the Devil or Broken Blossoms that are really deep and and fascinating. And I think another another misconception about silent cinema too is I feel like modern audiences look at what silent cinema is missing. Whereas something that I've really learned uh, as I've continued watching them, especially with with Jacqueline Stewart's uh, introductions as well, is how much these filmmakers did with so little. It's a different art form, not a lesser art form. Yeah, I can't stress the desire to see these films in the right way more than any other. You know, you can see a Technicolor comedy in a washed out print and still get power of it, even though it's not refreshed and restored with a silent if it's wrong in any way shape or form it does affect the entire outcome of the film because you're working without dialogue and i don't want to say without sound because as Ginny basinger teaches us in her book on the movie musical movies from the beginning of their career have always had sound they might not have always had dialogue but they've always had sound they're not completely silent and so I remember one of the first classic films that I engaged with was for a blogging event. I reviewed, I believe it was Mary Pickford's take on Cinderella. And I was cheap at the time. And I was, I found it on YouTube and I was like, sweet, you can find a lot of Mary Pickford movies on YouTube, but don't because they're all really bad. Just kind of public domain prints with 
public domain music. So I was watching this iteration of the story with like pomp and circumstance playing for the entirety of the film because that was the only music they were legally able to use. And so it really did ruin how I engaged with the the story because you don't get that emotion. The music creates the emotion. It's not just the acting, it's what you're hearing. And if you have pomp and circumstance playing during a sad sequence, you're just missing the, it's that really great example of a harsh dichotomy in your head of the sound versus the, the scene. So that's a you know wor- terrible way to engage with it. But for me, I think more than anything, the right actors really help with the silent film. I bring up Colleen Moore, who is not as well known as maybe Mary Pickford or even a Louise Brooks, but Colleen Moore's work is just so fresh and effervescent. And her work in Why Be Good from 1929, if you have not seen it, there's a beautiful, I believe it's a Blu-ray that you can go buy. It's it's great fun. And it's about, you know, Colleen Moore playing this flapper who has this night out on the town and finds herself being linked in this romantic relationship with her boss. And it's a really cute little rom-com and she's just so much fun. For me, I know it might be sacrilege to say that I'm not a big Chaplin fan, but I'm really not. I'm I'm more of a fan of Harold Lloyd. The first Harold Lloyd movie I ever saw was The Freshman. And that movie... You know, I know people, a lot of people say that you need to see silent films with an audience, which is true. But I watched The Freshman by myself on a restored print that I had gotten through Apple. And I laughed heartily by myself in my room. It was just a really great combination of sequence and actor. And I think that because silent cinema doesn't have dialogue, it's harder for an audience to do multitasking you know, you have to be focused on the screen in order to understand literally what's going on. And people don't like that, especially now with, you know, cell phones and all. I hate to sound like an old, you know, grandpa, but with a cell phone and all of that, like, you can't have a silent phone on in the background and expect to get the same thing. I think one thing that turns modern audiences away, and honestly, like, just speaking from experience myself... To a certain extent, I have found, I don't know if you guys relate to this, especially probably not you, Fritzy, but um, I find silent movies very draining to watch. I'll start watching and they just require so much more focus and attention than the average film for me that by the end of it, I'm ready to go to bed. <laughs> oh, oh no, it's, it's true. They are worth it, but I, I absolutely did have a headache after watching my first silent feature and after watching my first couple of silent features. So that's another thing. People shouldn't feel like they've failed or aren't watching it correctly if they find it tiring because it is a fairly intense experience. But on the other hand, I do think you get rewarded because a lot of the imagery kind of burrows deeper into your brain because you were required to do some of the work. It's similar to the difference between, you know, for example, a movie and a novel, you know. So I do think that you definitely are onto something and that might be part of the issue, which is one reason why a lot of people do prefer the shorts. I know a second grade teacher just told me that he's had really great success with little one minute Georges Méliès shorts with his with the little seven-year-olds in his class. So I was like, yay. But I think that also feeds into my idea of it as language, because if you've ever taken or learned another language, it's 
taxing in a surprising way when you're first engaging or even if you're watching something or reading something in a different language and then it gets easier the more you do it so hopefully like you're kind of learning those skills Kristen I'm not afraid to sound like an old grandpa so I will definitely agree to turn off your stupid phones when you're watching everything but specifically silent films and I also am hard-pressed to think of a song that could be worse to listen to over and over than Pomp and Circumstance in any movie during any scene. This is going to make me laugh forever. Like whenever I, I hear that movie or that song. I think it was Pomp and Circumstance and Happy Birthday that they kept playing no. over and over again. Oh my God. Okay, that's funny because I'm like, maybe the one that could be worse is Happy Birthday. And there you go. I would love to, while we're shouting out like the either the lesser known or whatever. Mabel Normand is my dreamboat favorite, I think, from these, both in front of and behind the camera. And sorry, I know Kristen is guiding this ship, but I, you know I love female creators and female filmmakers. And that's something that historically, I don't know if many people know that there was this, I mean, certainly I don't think enough people even know in the classic era what women were contributing to the medium, but let alone in silent film and kind of shaping it and in being writers and directors. And I think that's just such a it's a key part of understanding film history, but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't get its due enough. And Mabel, like many of them, but also with the men, I guess, that of being in front of and behind camera had such a special element to her and she could partner with people in such great ways and had just, she was just very likable and had depth and unexpected sort of sparkles to her. So I would have woken myself up in the middle of the night if I had forgotten to discuss Mabel Normand. I completely agree with you. I, I really enjoy her work as well. And just, I have to bring her up again. Marion Fairfax is this, the female screenwriter who whose grave that I marked at Hollywood Forever. And just as soon as I read her story, it just clicked with me. Like, we are missing out on so much history. Not only was she a a female screenwriter, one of the first females to be offered a studio contract. She has a film that she wrote in the Library of Congress, The Lost World, which is a sci-fi of all genres. So for a female sci-fi writer in the 20s, it's just, it's the most mind-blowing thing. There was like an article that I read about her. I want to pull up the exact quote, but basically what it was is, it was like a, a trade paper and they said, probably you don't know that Marion Fairfax's opinion is the most important in Hollywood. And as soon as I read that, in my effort to mark her grave, I said, if we mark her grave, I'm putting that on her tombstone. And I did. Well, I think people forget the role women play. And that's also, Fritzy can talk more about this, I'm sure. But I think that's also a common misconception that people have. Women and minorities tended to be, you know, there were none in silent cinema. And that's not necessarily true. I mean, the the actresses, obviously, you, you know, Mabel Norman, Marion Davies, in her way, you know, kind of having this ability to control the films that they make. But even from a directing standpoint, I know Kino put out a really great set of silent women directors, the likes of, I believe, Lois Weber, especially Alice Guy Blaché, which if you've not seen Be Natural, 
of the documentary about her and her time as one of the earliest female directors of the silent era. I mean, they definitely, and even from the, the African-American experience, Oscar Michaud and the way that Black actors were working in that time period, Zora Neale Hurston do, doing kind of early silent documentaries. I mean, they definitely were there. It's just who's in charge of the canon, as we know, which is, you know, old white guys. So, of course, their contributions have been scrubbed from from history. Fritzi, what do you think about the role of women and minorities in, in silent cinema? Oh, it's completely fascinating. You mentioned a lot of the the big names and how they're finally getting some recognition. But I think um, one important thing to know is that these films are good because sometimes sometimes people have the idea, oh, you know, this is just for historical purposes. But like with Lois Weber, I like to use suspense as an example. The 1913 short film Suspense. That anything anyone was making and if not better it needs no apology it needs no introduction it's just really good and it was directed by a woman and Oscar Michaud you know he was hampered by racism cutting him off from monetary resources and the resources of a studio but his films absolutely haunt you and that's a sign of talent if you're thinking about a movie weeks and years later that's a sign of talent and also, there were people who built what I call shadow industries, where they were not connected to the main Hollywood machine in America, and they were making movies directed at a very specific audience, like Marion Wong was only 21, and she tried to launch a Chinese-American film industry. And she didn't succeed in, because she had trouble with distribution, but her movie is good. It's, it's uh, The Curse of Quang Guang. It's impressive. And then there was Sidney Golden, who launched a Yiddish film industry and actually enjoyed some success. And so we have these wonderful Yiddish films that were made specifically for a Jewish audience, as opposed to the films being made in Hollywood that had Jewish characters, but were aimed at a more non-Jewish audience. So it's a very different tone to the film. So there's, as we keep saying, there's just so much. There's, oh, and there was a I f- forgive me, I forget the name. There was a studio in the southern part of Mexico that was making films that were designed with bilingual titles, Spanish-English titles that were meant to be distributed in California. And one of them actually was shown in the Inland Empire, The Ghost Train, which is also excellent. It's a really splendid little pulp movie. And I think actually once you leave the canon behind and realize that countries besides America, Sweden, France, Germany, Russia, countries besides those made movies. It's like, it's Aladdin's cave. It's absolutely wonderful. It's this huge treasure chest. And Fritzi, I know that a big part of what you do on Twitter, you know, we were talking about when we were having you on, kind of dispelling some of the myths of silent cinema that you're always kind of having to tell people are not necessarily true. For you, what is the biggest silent film myth that every time you hear it, you just, you've got to roll your eyes and be like, I got to explain it again, how it's not a thing. Well, lately it's been Birth of a Nation invented the movies, but I don't want to get into that because I just had to slaughter some guys and uh, it's exhausting. It's, it's pleasant, but it's exhausting because almost everything he did, Griffith didn't invent anything. He was just really good at claiming credit. But I think the number two one that I constantly makes me grit my teeth was that silent movies had nothing but women tied to the railroad tracks. And it annoys me because it's not true, first of all. And second, it diminishes them. It, you know, says the women couldn't do anything. They were just damsels. It says that it relied entirely on coarse melodrama. And it says that silent movies were the same for their entire 35 years. So it's like there's a lot underneath 
this one little cliche. And the fact of the matter is, if someone was tied to the tracks, it was probably a Keystone spoof of older film. And if it was serious, it was usually a guy tied to the tracks or to the sawmill. Um, actually, I just saw two in a row of guys tied to the sawmill, which ma- thrilled me. The Detective's Dog, directed by Alice Gee, and then Married with Constance Bennett. Owen Moore was tied to the sawmill and had to be rescued by the two leading ladies. So I'm like, ha, 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 how now? And I was thrilled when, with Little Women when they showed a man tied to the sawmill in the play that they attend, because that was a visual callback to Blue Jeans, which featured that as its, as its centerpiece. So I would say, yeah, Tied to the Tracks just sets my teeth on edge because... It is so contemptuous of the era. And what's another one that... I know one of the biggest... I know one of the biggest ones, and I've seen you dispel this one a lot, is the concept of whose careers were, quote-unquote, ended by not having the right voice for silent film. That's true. The old John Gilbert one. Because John Gilbert's voice was fine. His delivery was a little stilted. He was given silly dialogue. You know, it was fine. The pipes were fine. And I like to say, if you think that was a problem. You should hear Rod the Rock because he sounded like Jiminy Cricket, you know, and he still had a career is my point, you know. So it's just, it's very complicated. There were a lot of balls in the air because the economy was tanking, tastes were changing, talkies brought along all new genres or not even new genres, but revived genres, refreshed genres. It changed what people wanted to see. Society had changed, culture had changed and new technology had been introduced. These people were accomplished in the art of pantomime, but maybe not necessarily in using their voice. So they're taking something that's very, very complicated and getting it down to the simplistic, oh, he sounded like Mickey Mouse, you know? And I think that's the key problem is, I keep saying most of the misconceptions about silent film are either people trying to make something simple complicated or making something complicated simple. You know, just look at the facts and see, because a lot of silent stars, for example, she's not extremely famous, but I mean, compared to the others, Wanda Hawley, she was an actress who specialized in kind of sweetheart roles. You know, she was the darling little sweetheart in the 19 teens and was very popular, beautiful blonde hair, you know, the the works. And she's sometimes listed as a victim of sound. Even her own kids said, oh yeah, her voice was terrible. You know, she clearly couldn't make it in the talkies. But this was after years of smoking and drinking and messing up her voice. So I did some research because whenever someone says their voice ruined them in the talkies, I always want to know. So the first thing you have to do is you have to look at what they were doing before the talkies arrived. And in her case, they if you look at her filmography, the studios got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So she started in Paramount and ended up in these tiny little fly-by-night poverty row affairs. So it wasn't like her career was doing wonderful, you know, it was, she was a major star before the talkies hit. And I did find one talkie that she made on home video and I listened and guess what? Her voice was perfectly normal. She was fine. Her performance was fine. It's just that she wasn't a big star when the talkies hit. There was a flood of new talent from the stage and she got washed away. It was no harm, no foul, but she's sometimes listed as a victim of of sound and she wasn't. So, I mean, I realize she's not a household name and nobody's going to win any awards writing about her, but it's just one of those small things where you know, it's a bigger part of the puzzle. And it shows that what we think was simple was actually a lot more complicated. Yeah, as, as much as I love Singing in the Rain, I feel like a lot of people get their information about the silent era from that movie. You know, that everybody sounded like Lena Lamont. And it's, it's given people that, it's put that in their mind to such an extent. It's true. And 
And also, I think part of the problem is, is that a lot of people who did transition successfully actually made a lot of their movies in the pre-code era. And a lot of the pre-code films were not released for years because of, you know, censorship issues. So that's another problem. So you'll see someone like, oh, wow, I didn't see anything since 1927. It's like, well, yes, it exists. It just hasn't been available. One of the things that I've recently discovered that I've just found so heartbreaking is those negative depictions like Singing in the Rain basically gave mid-century audiences such a harsh viewpoint of silent film that it made silent stars who were still alive and working ashamed of their own silent work. And that, that just reading that recently just really broke my heart. Reginald Denny is the one that comes to mind. Like he, he became so ashamed of his own silent films. And I just can't imagine that happening to an actor. Yes. And, and his films are great. That's the thing. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. He's about to get, you know, or recently got a box set released of some of his earlier yes. work. And, and that's so exciting that I'm sure he would have loved to see. Yeah, it's wonderful to see the revivals, but it is a shame that for a lot of them it came too late. You know, they, they didn't get to enjoy it. One story I really like is director William Bodine, who he started out as a really prestigious director and then slowly went into Poverty Row. And as a result, some people turned him into a punchline, claiming his name was One Shot Bodine. And it's like, look, he had no budget. Leave him alone. But his silent stuff is brilliant. And even his early talky stuff, like Make Me a Star is a wonderful movie. But uh, they rediscovered The Canadian, which had been lost um, since it was released. And they actually arranged a screening for him in 1970. And he had never seen it. He had been too busy to go to the premiere. And so he saw it. And it's this beautiful drama and just so well acted, so well done. And he was like, I guess I was a good director once. And they gave him a standing ovation and he passed away a few months later. And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not crying. You're crying. And so that's, but, so I love to hear stories like that, but it's a shame they're so rare. Well, I think too that with silence, if anything, if the biggest entry point for people to find out about them, historically speaking, is through crime for, for if anything, the silent era had some of the more interesting crime elements that when you hear like true crime podcasts about Hollywood, there's so much stuff happening in the silent era, whether that's the Arbuckle case or the death of Olive Thomas or the murder of William Desmond Taylor, that I feel like people have this assumption that Yes, Hollywood in this time period was the Wild West in terms of production because they were still really finding their feet, but it also has taken on this air of hedonism almost. Yeah, I, I definitely think a lot of it is people wanting the dirt, the juicy gossip and all that. And I generally try to stay away from that, not from like a sanctimonious standpoint, you know, you do you enjoy what you enjoy, but just because I've ended up witnessing so many knock down drag outs about who slept with who. And at a certain point, it's like, we didn't have cameras on the wall. We don't know for sure. As long as they didn't scare the horses, I don't really care, <laughs> you know? So I think, I mean, if it gets people interested, that's great. But I did have a, a case where I love Paula Negri, Polish actress, beautiful Polish actress, wonderful performer. She could do anything, comedy, drama. She was great. And I had someone write this long rant to me about how they didn't like the way she behaved at Rudolph Valentino's funeral. And they ended it with, I guess I should watch one of her movies now. And I'm like, look, <laughs> the point is supposed to be the movies. You get this, right? 
so like I said, I don't mind if other people are into the gossip, you know, have fun, you know, and do what you enjoy. But for me, I tend to get a little skittish because there were so many, in some cases, physical battles over this that I get a little, I try to stick to the stuff that's on the screen because I think sometimes the gossip overwhelms it. You know, people are ready to make assumptions about Arbuckle without ever seeing his films or, and with all of Thomas, you can't really blame people because hardly any of her stuff exists. So that's a tragedy. It's similar to what you were saying about like the on-screen things of people's misconceptions of like how these silent careers tracked out or, or possibly ended because of sound. The reality is like a ton of that gossip that's considered sort of built into our cultural lore is incorrect. Like Fatty Arbuckle's a great example of you can say that name to people who have no idea who he is, but they're like, oh, that's the guy who did this. And then you're like, well, did you read the the access that you have to read? Drea, what is that? Casca <laughs> <laughs> say read. Yeah, there's the gossip is something that's so upsetting anyway, because most of the time you don't even actually know the gossip. You know a filtered version of gossip that at this point is like decades through the like word of mouth wrangler and what a thing to keep you away i mean there's certainly we've mentioned dw griffiths that i'm like yeah i don't need to support that guy's work he's already heralded as this like nonsense the guy of the time when i think the message of so much of what he makes was ugly and (laughs) just yes nothing i need to perpetuate that said there's plenty of people who haven't been run through a similar filter whose work is i don't know it's it's that tricky balance of i guess know some of their life story to make good decisions of how it might be um, reflected in their filmmaking but also let the films do the Let the films do the talking, ironically said here, but yes. I think one of the things that's a real shame is that so much of, how do I put this? You know, Birth of a Nation gets all the spotlight while you have the far better rebuttal within our gates that doesn't. And there are so many amazing filmmakers of color and actors of color and just, just so much light and so much talent in the era but then you have the bad stuff that gets the attention yeah, yeah he he was um that's that's the thing is that there you can very happily paddle along without any griffiths at all and connecting it to both griffiths and the gossip like for example i just reviewed the miracle of the wolves which is a a French silent medieval epic. It uses shaky cam for the action scenes. It's very modern and it's really good. It's really epic. It's directed by Raymond Barnard. And I didn't know this. I was doing my research and they're like, oh yeah. And then he went on the run from the Nazis. And I'm like, what, 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 you know? You know, it's like, why are we talking about the Arbuckle case for the hundredth time when we have this seriously talented director who had to escape from the Nazis? I mean, why are we why are we not telling this story? This is a good story that I would like to hear. He survived, by the way. I don't wanna I don't wanna leave anyone in suspense, but he did survive and return to his career. But but that goes back to it. There's so much like just for an example, um, Finland has put its archives online and they're slowly adding English subtitles to everything. So I'm watching Finnish silent films now and they're great people need to see them they have this wonderful kind of ethereal pagan quality to them and i've never seen anything like them and i'm having a wonderful time and so i'm like why are we watching the same 40 films when we have oscar show we have lois weber we have marion wong we have all these wonderful people and no i just don't have time for this (laughs) 
My side, this is not super related, but that reminded me of in terms of the artists that silent film can introduce you to, that it's also one of the few times because when film was like coming up as a new medium, that the to me that there were these renowned artists like Man Ray or Marcel Duchamp or Louis Bunuel, like the idea that there were people working in other mediums that then experimented with this new format. You don't see that as much now. I mean, like Warhol obviously very did this in a very famous way, but um, in terms of the exploration, I love that you casually mentioned that you're watching, oh, you know, this handful of Finnish silent films because wonderful but there is it's anyway it just reminded me of like being able to see things through the eyes of a bunch of people beyond the handful of names that we identify with this whole like like you said this was like decades of filmmaking and you only know a couple of the people where there's all of these different avenues you can take to explore before we close out is there anything anybody else wants to touch on so Drea had the thing where she would be remiss if she didn't mention Mabel Normand. Anna Mae Wong, you guys. Anna Mae Wong. Wish and I have me. to say as well, The Thief of Baghdad is one of my favorite silent films. And everyone needs to watch it. It, it might not put her in the best light, per se, <laughs> but, but it's just absolutely fantastic. I know when the TCM Classic Film Festival uh, said that their theme was like Fantastic Worlds on film, I was hoping and praying that they would do that film with the, with the live orchestra. And I'm still hoping for that someday. But Anna Mae Wong, is, she's probably my favorite silent actress, to be honest, and she deserves a lot more attention. Yeah, we didn't talk about a silent anime one when we did our, our episode a couple weeks ago on Daughter from Shanghai, but I did mention watching Piccadilly before that, and I mean, she is just so magnetic, so luminous in, that, in all of her films that it will always be a shame that we, did, we didn't get more from her. And again, if you have not listened to our episode on Daughter of Shanghai, you should, because it was really awesome and it goes uh, pretty in-depth on, on anime. I'm also a big fan of When Were You Born from 1938. It's a, it's a rare one. That's, that's the one where she's the, the astrologer, right? Uh-huh. Okay, that's the one that I was trying to figure out when we did the episode. And I kept <laughs> saying I couldn't remember the name of it. And if you had been on that, Sam, you would have told me. I'm and we sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it's so, it's so it's cute. very fun. Yeah. Love that one. So, yeah, that was all I had to say. Anime Wong is the best. Everyone else can go home. I would like, well, since we're, we're doing a quick shout out to favorites, I just want to say Russian emigre cinema in Paris, because when the revolution hit, almost all of their film industry fled to Paris and they made the most wonderful, spectacular movies. They made crowd pleasers that were also critical darlings, which are the most difficult films in the world to make. And they made serials, they made mysteries, they made epics, they made romances, they made whatever the heck Burning Crucible was. And... I am such a fan. So I always tell people, you know, if you only watch the Soviets, you have to watch the emigre cinema, particularly Ivan Mozhukin, who I am completely enraptured with. So my quick shout out. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's, if you are a, a fan of uh, Flickr Alley, they put out a lot of silent cinema, a lot of international silence. So they're a great resource if you want to learn more. But before we close out, Fritzy, you know, for you, if somebody kind of wants, not necessarily a crash course in silence, but they want to get into them, but they want to see stuff that's accessible. 
you know, not just in terms of access, in terms of getting a physical copy or a streaming copy, but a way in that is easy to hopefully bolster a love of silence. What is a movie you recommend? Well, oddly enough, I've had some very good success with The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, just because it's such a distinct visual style. It's so strange. And because it's so bizarre, they don't have to feel bad about feeling kind of out of it and not quite connecting. You know, it, it's supposed to be weird. You're supposed to feel strange when you watch it. And oddly enough, I also had wonderful success with a French serial called Judex. It's about a caped vigilante who is trying to get revenge against a corrupt banker who has destroyed lives. And it's completely, it's bonkers. He has a pack of dogs. He communicates by carrier pigeon. He delivers his threats to the bad guys with a little French poodle carrying a note in its mouth on its little hind leg. So, I mean, Which it's, incidentally it's, is how I would also send my threats. Oh, of course. I mean, yeah. it's the only way, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's marvelous, but it also has like emotional depth. It examines the price of vengeance. So you, it, it's like, it's everything at once. And I had people who like had never seen the sound film in their lives, sit down and watch all four hours of it and just not stop. So I'm putting it up there. And then also some shorts, like for example, Princess Nicotine, The Smoke Fairy. It's about a little pyromaniac fairy that attacks a guy for opening a, a cigar box. And it's it's marvelous. It's so strange. Or The Cameraman's Revenge, which is a tale of adultery and revenge nudes told entirely with dead insects that are stop motion animated. So I, I like to just shock them with the weirdness, I guess. <laughs> shock and awe. That's my campaign. So I mean, I know a lot of people have had success with slapstick and comedy and, you know, if that works, go for it. But I'm kind of also a comedy person myself. So those are the things that I like to sell to people. All right. Thank you so much, Fritzy, for joining us. Where can fans get in touch with you, uh, find your work? Is there anything that you'd like to promote or shout out? Well, I have been uh, blogging at moviesilently.com for quite some time now. You can find me at Twitter at moviesilently. And I did spearhead the release of a completely authentic 1917 Night at the Movies a couple years ago. And I'm working on another one. I've just been a bit delayed with health and COVID. But honestly, I swear I am indeed working on a new release. So I hope to have that launched in before the earth cools. So uh, that's pretty much it. But thanks for having me on. All right. That closes out this edition of Ticklish Business. You can find the podcast on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. You can find my work at Classic Film Geek. I have my website, musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com. And you can find my Cooking with the Stars posts at classicmoviehub.com. Kristen, where can fans get in touch with you? You can find me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. And then I blog occasionally, very occasionally, at journeysandclassicfilm.com. Andrea? I'm on Twitter at the Drea Clark. I blog never, so you guys both have me beat. But I also co-host a contemporary film podcast called Who Shot Ya? You can also download Ticklish Business where you get your podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Player FM. You can also get exclusive pins, early episodes, and entirely new shows on our Patreon at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. And we will be back next time with another episode on our road to 100 with another special guest talking about the world and works of Marlena Dietrich. So till then.